This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So um, I'm now about to give you an hour-long talk in 18 minutes. So uh, fasten your seatbelts. So here's an outline of what I'm going to be doing today. I'm going to begin by providing sort of a conceptual framework for how we think of the role of experience in brain and behavioral development talk a little bit about the history of what led Romania to abandon and orphan so many children, why neglect is bad for the brain, and then findings from this project that Tarnay just mentioned. Uh, I'm going to focus today disproportionately on behavior, and tomorrow I'll turn my attention to brain and biology. So we need to begin with the premise that experience is really the engine that drives much of postnatal brain development that some experiences are, or at least should be, universal to all members of the species. So, for example, sensory input and caregiving, and and these help ensure survival. Others may optimize development. So, for example, it's one thing to have a caregiver who just simply feeds you. It's another to have a caregiver who is responsive to your needs and sensitive to your needs. Exposure to complex but age-appropriate language, age-appropriate cognitive stimulation. In many cases, both classes of experience have to occur during a narrow window of time, which we often refer to either as a sensitive period or a critical period, for development to proceed along a typical healthy developmental trajectory. Two additional points about experience, of course, is that it's cut, it cuts both ways. Uh, this is a, a, a phrase that I, for years, attributed to Bill Greeno, and then Bill Greeno told me actually it was Jay McVicker Hunt who talked about this. So that if a child is exposed to adverse experiences during this critical period of development, infection, maltreatment, lack of caregiving, or deprived of expectable experiences like nutrition or caregiving, then brain development can be undermined. And the second is that brain plasticity changes with age. In some domains, changes possible throughout the lifespan. For example, barring pathology, will all be capable of learning and memory throughout our lifespans. But on the other hand, there are other domains where change is limited to the first years. For example, vision and hearing. We don't learn to see better or to hear better. So in today's talk, what I'm going to focus on is what happens to the brain when there's a profound violation of the expectable environment during a critical period of development. Specifically, what happens to children who experience profound deprivation early in life? And then the second question is, can these deleterious effects of early deprivation be reversed? And if so, are there temporal constraints on doing so? So just by way of background, we know that neglect is the most common form of child maltreatment in the United States. That uh, basically, that was sorry, I was just trying to impress you with my PowerPoint skills. Um, uh, That 75% of all cases of maltreatment involve neglect. That a particularly extreme form of neglect is being raised in conditions of profound psychosocial deprivation, such as the 8 million children around the world who live in institutions. And I should also add that there are about 140 million orphans around the world. So uh, through the, the, the gracious funding of the MacArthur Foundation, in the late 1990s, I was chairing a research network on early experience and brain development, and two members of the group, Charlie Zena and Nathan Fox, and I launched what is now known as the Bucharest Early Intervention Project, which continues to this day. And there were three goals. One was to examine the effects of institutionalization on brain and behavioral development. A second is to determine if these effects can be remediated through an intervention, in our case, very high-quality foster care. And the third was to improve the welfare of children in Romania by establishing foster care as an alternative to institutional care. In Romania at the time, they viewed institutional care as the intervention for child abandonment. 
So just by way of background, this really uh, was an experiment in social engineering engineered by Nikolai Ceausescu, who is this individual here. So in 1966, Ceausescu, who took over uh, the country, he was a shoe cobbler by trade, had an idea that he could increase his power if he increased the population. And to increase the population, he set into motion a series of decrees which began with the menstrual police. So these were state gynecologists who conducted monthly checks of women uh, of childbearing age who had had fewer than five kids to make sure they weren't using birth control or hadn't uh, terminated a pregnancy. He established a celibacy tax whereby families received a stipend if they had more than two kids, but they were taxed heavily if they had fewer than five. And finally, he had outlawed all contraception and abortion. And the result was that in, uh, before, before I go to that, was that by the time he was overthrown in 1989, there were more than 170,000 children living in state-run institutions. So I now want to show you a brief video clip of an individual now in his 30s who was the byproduct of one of these early uh, uh, orphaned children. Communism fell, and the world went to Romania to cover the fall of Ceausescu. There were some medias that actually found institutions, institutions that were never meant to be discovered by the public or the outside world. It left the world in shock that such conditions even existed. Those of us who visited these institutions built by the communist regime are unlikely ever to forget them. Hundreds of children not so much cared for as contained. Well, at the age of six months old, I became ill, and my parents took me to a hospital uh, to be treated for my illness. But instead of finding healing at a hospital, I actually ended up being infected with polio. My parents took me to a different hospital in Sigetu Marmazia. They never came back. So the state put me in an institution for handicapped children, an orphanage known as Home Hospital for the Irrecoverable Children. What's in this room, no one could prepare for. Filthy, dark and stinking. There's excrement everywhere. These boys are the most difficult cases. They deserve the best of care. Instead, they get the worst. From the moment that we could remember for ourselves, that's all we knew. We didn't have compassion. We didn't have feelings or emotions. We just existed to just vegetate, you know. We were just wild animals that needed to be caged up, is what we were considered pretty much. Like, Okay, I think we've seen enough of that. Um, so um, as someone who in my other life studies neurodevelopmental disorders, I, I actually recognize this phenotype. The difference is that the disorders I study usually are single gene mutations, whereas these are a byproduct of the environment for the most part. So uh, we've known for decades that children 
uh, Reardon institutions are at a very high risk for a variety of cognitive, social, and behavioral problems, including disturbances in social relatedness and attachment, externalizing behavior problems, inattention, hyperactivity, deficits in IQ and executive functions, and a syndrome that mimics autism, and then growth stunting. So here's an example of growth stunting. So I want you to be thinking of these are boys or girls and how old they are. So this is a 17-year-old girl, and this is a 14-year-old girl. And as a rule, children, children lose about a month of linear growth for every one month they spend in a highly deprived environment. So the study we did is actually a randomized controlled trial of foster care as an alternative to institutional care. And the way we did this is that we screened more than 180 infants and and, uh, basically kids under about a year or two to make sure they didn't have a frank neurological or genetic syndrome. We could only do behavioral exams. We couldn't do blood work and the like. And of more than 180 we wound up at the 136 that we considered to be typically developing. Not easy to do when you're looking at babies who are 9, 10, or 11 months of age, but they look to be typically developing. And we also recruited a sample of 72 children in the community who had never been in an institution. They lived with their family. After an extensive baseline assessment, these 136 children were randomly assigned to either to remain in institutional care, what we'll call care as usual, or to be randomly assigned to a high-quality foster care program that we built, maintained, and paid for ourselves. Um, The original goal was to see these children for the first few years of life. So, in fact, we saw them at 9, 18, 30, and 42 months, and at 54 months, at which point the intervention formally ended and was turned over to the authorities. And then we thought we would go a little bit longer, so I found funding at age 8, and we saw them then. And then I was tired of commuting to Romania, but then I found funding at age 12, and I said, that's enough, but then we found more money. And then we saw them at age 16, and we were just refunded to see them again at 21. In fact, I'm there in three weeks to launch the 21-year follow-up of these kids. So the three of us who do this work come from different backgrounds, and we're all thick-headed. So when it came time to discuss what was the most important thing to study, this is the short list of what we came up with, because we really couldn't agree on what were the most important things to study. I thought, naturally, it was the brain, and Charlie Zena thought it was mental health. Um, So I'm going to summarize just a small set of the findings because of, of time limits. And all the findings I'll talk about today, and for those of you here tomorrow, are based on what's called an intent-to-treat design. There are a lot of ethics involved in the study that I'm not going to talk about, but what this comes down to is that we fully expected over time the original, the children in one group or the other would change group assignments. A classic example would be a child who was randomly assigned to the institutional group. The authorities decided that child should be reunited with their biological family, or that child should go into government foster care or be adopted. We had no in this, we didn't interfere in this, but over time, children changed their group assignment. But we analyzed their data based on their original randomization schedule, because that avoids the pitfalls of selective of sample bias. Um, so I'll start with IQ and then move from there. At baseline, when the kids on average were about 20 months, using the Bailey exam, you can see that the children in the institutional group are actually below the cut point for intellectual disability compared to the children in the never-institutional group. So then the question is, what happens following random assignment to foster care? We'll start with this. This is going out to 54 months. At every age, you'll see that the children in foster care have markedly higher IQs than the children in the institutional group. And here, the more important finding is that This is only foster care. The children placed under the age of two have markedly higher IQs than the children placed after two. 
Even as late as 12 years of age, what we see is we still see an intervention effect. Here's full-scale IQ, never institutional group, foster care group, institutional group. And one thing to keep in mind is that this intervention was not designed as a cognitive stimulation program. It was designed to build relationships. So we didn't have any idea that IQ would benefit like this. But nevertheless, we continue to see this, and we see no washout. Even through 16, where we're now going through the data, we still see an intervention effect. Uh, So young children living in institutions show reductions in IQs. Removal from institutional care and placement into high-quality foster care before two leads to a recovery, although not full recovery. Um, And we see stability across the first 12 years of life. Uh, The one thing I'm not going to show you is that when we look at placement disruptions, because it turns out because of the authorities, there were kids who made multiple placements. They went from the institution back to the biological family, re-abandoned, then to foster care. The children who show more placement disruptions have much less favorable outcomes. Stability matters. Turning now to attachment, the issue, the question now is, if you look back 50 years in this literature, what you often see are disturbances in attachment behavior. So this is the relationship a child has with a caregiver. And so we assume that these perturbations and attachments early in life could alter the trajectories of other aspects of social-emotional development. So let me give you an example uh, of this. This is uh, what's called the strange situation. This is the manipulation where a child is in a room with a caregiver and maybe some toys, and then a stranger walks in the room. You see how the child behaves with the stranger. Then the caregiver leaves. You see how the child interacts with the stranger. Then the stranger leaves and is left alone. And then an adult comes back in the room, and you see how they respond. So this is an 18-month-old, and I want you to watch... Um, what goes on. So right now, this is the phase where the child's been left alone with the toys. So... Um, This looks like a classic reunion episode. He he jumps into her arms, holds on to her, but that's the first time he's ever met this woman. And that's sort of the indiscriminate behavior that is very common among kids with histories of neglect. In fact, Mike Rutter, the distinguished child psychiatrist in the UK, argues that this is part of a syndrome of, of, of institutionalization syndrome. So what we see at baseline is... Among the never institutionalized children, about 70% look like they have a secure attachment. The same number of of, um, institutionalized children have an insecure attachment. So it's profoundly disruptive at baseline. Now, if you look at the intervention, the children placed in foster care before 22 months, 70% have a secure attachment. The children placed in foster care after 22 months, 70% have an insecure attachment. So we see that same inflection point. At 54 months and then again at 8, and the findings are the same, we did a functional measure of attachment behavior. And what we did is we arranged with the caregiver or the mother that we said someone was going to knock on the door, let your child answer the door, and let your child do whatever they want to do. So with that arrangement, the stranger knocked on the door, the child answered the door, and the stranger said, come with me, I have something to show you. Took a lot to get this through our ethics board, and this is sort of every parent's nightmare, right? Um, and the question is, would they walk out the door and walk off with a complete stranger? If you look at the institutional group, 
more than 50% of the kids in the institutional group walked off with a complete stranger. That was cut in half of the kids in foster care, and there was one in the community who did that, so we've been monitoring that child for 20 years now to see why they did that. So children experiencing early institutional care are um, far more likely to develop disturbances in attachment than those who did not. Children randomly assigned to foster care following institutional care, particularly if they were younger than 22 to 24 months, are like, more likely to show an improvement in attachment behavior. Lastly, what about the brain? So we assume the behavioral phenotype that we've been observing all these years has its origin in alterations in brain development. And so we've done lots of different things. Um, over the years, we've done EEG, and, and now we've been doing MRI for the last decade or so. I'm only going to talk about the EEG data. So uh, the way to view this is we place sensors on, well, you can see that in this child here. Uh, we place sensors on the, the child's head, and we can record the brain's electrical activity. We can color code it. Uh, so red would reflect more activity. Green would reflect less activity. And what you're looking at here is a view from the top down. Here's the nose, back of the head, left ear, right ear. And notice how much more brain activity there is in the never-institutionalized group compared to the institutionalized group. If you move to the foster care placement, this is at age 8, institutionalized group, foster care after two years of age, and they're identical. Foster care before two years of age, never institutionalized group, they're identical. So the same inflection point uh, that we see in IQ and attachment where there's a cut point sometime around 20 to 24 months. So children who receive the care as usual display deficits in the brain's electrical activity compared to kids randomized to foster care. Children who received the foster care intervention continued to show typical levels of brain activity through age 16, not just eight. And age of placement in foster care was associated with an increase in alpha power. So there are a lot of changes in Romania. Uh, basically, because of, in part, the study, they changed the law that children under two could not be institutionalized and under three. And if you look at the statistics of the number of kids living in institutions, it's plummeted. So the bottom line is let's learn from the science. Let's inform policymakers, politicians, and clinicians about the short and long-term effects of early neglect, but in particular that the duration of time spent in a neglectful environment powerfully influences later development. I really can't talk any faster than this. Age of a child when removed from a neglected environment and placed into um, a family is also critical in influencing the outcome. Early neglect can have lifelong effects on both psychological and physical development. And finally, these findings are not limited to children growing up in institutions, but rather generalized to any child experiencing early and profound deprivations such as parent-child separations. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.